We are back, and as promised at the top of the program, in our second uh, half, we're going to talk to a few people that we have talked to before in regards to this great pandemic sweeping the nation. On June 4th, we interviewed a Susan Parker, a longtime friend of ours who had just traveled in May, around Memorial Day, I think, uh, through the South, through Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, all the way into Florida, and reported on what she found, what she and we predicted at the time was that things were not going to go well in some of these states. And so uh, for an update at this point, uh, let's, let's bring her back. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Ms. Parker. Hi, Doug. It's good to be back. Reminding people, we, we, you, you said you didn't think things were going to go well, for example, in Texas, because you went into a store at one point, and uh, there were 20 people in the store, and I asked you if there was, you know, how many masks there were, and you said two, and I was wearing them both, which kind of gave an idea of where things stood in Texas. And, and as you predicted, Texas hasn't done so well. In Texas, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was not even a question of should we or should we wear a mask, should we or should we not social distance. There was no, absolutely no desire to do either thing. They reopened all the businesses at once, no masks, no no precautions. It was basically declared, you know, Texas was going to do what Texas wanted, and they were... They were not going to be told to do anything any differently. So you could, you could see the handwriting on the wall in Texas. Yeah, and currently, Texas, as of a few days ago, has um, passed us in, in death toll. And, uh, I mean, California, comparing the two states, California has a much larger population. But there have now been more deaths in Texas, and it's just a, it's, it's only a matter of time before they surpass us in the number of cases, which will then again push that death number up. So, I mean, the red states, uh, I just did, we talked about it in the top here, uh, 18 states in the country that have over 3,000 cases per 100,000, 17 of them are red states. <laughs> well, having my son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter in the state of Florida, I have particularly been keeping an eye on Florida, which is the poster child for the red states right now, and the red state response. They continue to astonish me at the level to which they'll go to deny this virus. Yeah, Governor DeSantis recently just said everything looks like you got the all clear. Let's open everything up. You know, it's not even just the opening of the businesses. It's the denying of the actual virus and the refusal to keep count of what's happening in the state. Yeah, there's been a lot of evidence that Florida, above all others, is really hiding the numbers. Yes, and I, I recently sent my son a screenshot. I, I type in the words Florida COVID on a regular basis just to see how the state is doing, and the top headlines will come up. And the first headline was from a few days ago. It was from, I think, the Orlando Sentinel, and it said, Florida reports an additional 84 deaths and 3,200 cases. On a, on a given day. The very next headline from a different newspaper said, Governor DeSantos suggests that Florida should slow down on the frequency of reporting COVID cases. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes great sense to me. These numbers are too high. Let's just stop reporting them. Uh, that's the mentality. The latest they're pulling in Florida is the herd immunity. Yeah. has gotten a lot of uh, press. Uh, they, they heard it through the Twitter and Facebook, so therefore it is truth. So they are no longer worried about getting COVID because they know they're close to herd immunity. 
if they do get COVID, they are still believers that hydroxychloroquine will save them, as it did, you know, our fearless leaders. Isn't it ironic that after all that talk about hydroxychloroquine, 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 Trump goes to Walter Reed Hospital, and guess what he doesn't get? A drop of hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, that's, that's my understanding. Susan Parker, thank you for the update. I guess we will not speak again till after the election. And I suppose if things don't go the way we, uh, we, we're hoping, that it won't, there will be no point in talking anyway. Well, I'm fleeing the country. Right, well, good luck reactivating the passport or <laughs> obtaining the foreign passport or whatever you're going to do. All right. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks. We need to talk a little bit about that whole herd immunity thing at this point. We have to confess, we weren't paying that much attention last week to the Great Barrington Declaration. We did mention it in passing. White House officials were promoting this declaration, which is a support of herd immunity. This report was spearheaded by three people who were part of the American Institute for Economic Research, the AIER, which is a described libertarian think tank. This so-called declaration came out of a meeting hosted by the AIER, led by professors Martin Kuldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, and Sunetra Gupta. They argued against lockdowns and argued for more reopenings during the pandemic. The declaration states current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health, to which they added the most compassionate approach that balances the risk and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection, while better protecting those who are at highest risk. Which, you know, I guess at first glance doesn't sound too stupid. The declaration was signed by 445,000 concerned citizens, supposedly. Also, 9,500 medical and public health scientists and 25,000 medical practitioners, according to its website. But it turned out when they looked at actually the list of people who were signatories to this, they included Dr. I.P. Freely, Dr. Person Fake Name, and Dr. Johnny Bananas. Another signatory called himself Dr. Harold Shipman who was a general practitioner in the UK, arrested for killing more than 200 of his patients. The declaration was also signed by at least 18 self-described homeopaths, who signed on as medical practitioners, and 100 therapists, including massage therapists, hypnotherapists, and psychotherapists. Now, you know, I, I think they would qualify among the concerned citizens signing on to this, but if you have a respiratory ailment, a devastating infectious respiratory disease that causes pneumonia, my guess is you're not going to seek care with a massage therapist or hypnotherapist. The Guardian decided to step into this controversy, and God bless them for doing so. They noted that the signing ceremony for the Great Barrington Declaration had a slick website and a video produced to accompany the event, and there was an ostentatious champagne toast that followed. Noted the Guardian... The strategy of pursuing quote-unquote herd immunity is nothing more than a fringe view. There is no real scientific divide over this approach because there's no science to justify its usage in the case of COVID-19. We know when it comes to other coronaviruses that immunity is only temporary. Said the Guardian, it's time to stop asking the question, is this sound science? We know it's not. Instead, we should be more curious about the political interests surrounding the declaration. Within hours of its launch, it had ceded political and ideological impacts disproportionate to its scientific significance. 
Its three signatories were later received by Alex Azar, the U.S. Secretary of HHS, and wouldn't you know it, by Dr. Scott Atlas, recently appointed as Donald Trump's health advisor. And it turns out the AIER, this so-called libertarian think tank, is in its own words committed to pure freedom and wishes to see the role of government sharply defined. It does have a rather controversial history, such as the study it put out extolling the benefits of sweatshops, supplying multinationals for those employed in them. And wouldn't you know it, its statements on uh, climate change uh, largely downplay the threats of an environmental crisis. And it is a partner in what's described as the Atlas Network of Think Tanks, I think no relation to Scott Atlas, I hope not anyway, which acts as an umbrella for free market and libertarian institutions whose funders have included tobacco firms, ExxonMobil, and the Koch brothers. Now, Ms. Uh, Ms. Parker sort of speculated the possibility that the October surprise, since vaccines are not available to uh, provide a solution to the COVID pandemic, that they may have to just say, well, you know what? We got this through herd immunity. This prompted John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, to write a piece in the New York Times titled, What Fans of Herd Immunity Don't Tell You? Noted John Barry, the academics behind the Great Barrington Declaration are a distinct minority. Most of their public health colleagues have condemned their proposal as unworkable and unethical, even amounting to mass murder as William Hazeltine, the former Harvard Medical School professor who now heads the Global Health Foundation, put it to CNN last week. Noted Barry, the idea of returning to something akin to normal, releasing everybody from a kind of jail, is attractive. It's even seductive. But it becomes less seductive when one examines three enormously important omissions in the Declaration. First, it makes no mention of harm to infected people in low-risk groups. Yet, many people recover slowly. More serious, a significant number, including those with no symptoms, suffer damage to their heart and lungs. One recent study of 100 recovered adults found that 78 showed signs of heart damage. Second, it says little about how to protect the vulnerable. One can keep a child from visiting a grandparent in another city easily enough, but what happens if the child and grandparent live in the same household? And how do you protect a 25-year-old diabetic or cancer survivor or an obese person or anybody else with a comorbidity who needs to go to work every day? Upon closer examination, the, quote, focused protection, unquote, that the Declaration urges devolves into a kind of three-card Monty. One can't pin it down. Lastly, the Declaration omits mention of how many people the policy would kill. It's a lot. As mentioned on this program, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, whose model of the pandemic the White House has used, predicts up to about 415,000 deaths by February 1st, even with current restrictions continuing. If these restrictions are eased, as opposed to eliminating them entirely, which would occur if herd immunity were pursued, deaths could rise to as many as 571,000, and that's just by February 1st. The model predicts daily deaths will still be increasing at that point. Asked John Barry, will we have achieved herd immunity then? No. Herd immunity occurs when enough people have immunity, either through natural infection or vaccine, so the outbreak eventually dies out. By February 1st, even with eased mandates, only 25% of the population will have been infected. That's according to his calculations. The most optimistic model suggests that herd immunity might occur when 43% of the population has been infected, but many estimate 60 to 70% before transmission trends definitively downward. So what's going to be the cost? If we follow the doctors of the Great Barrington Declaration, 
even if herd immunity can be achieved by only 40% of the population, then the IHME at the University of Washington estimates that a total of 800,000 Americans would die. The real death toll needed to reach herd immunity could far exceed 1 million. Of course, we're just talking about deaths, not the people that suffer consequences afterwards. Barry, who's a bit of an expert on the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic, noted that some aftereffects of that pandemic did not surface until the 1920s or later. Children born during the peak in 1919 had worse health outcomes as they grew older compared to others born around that time. There's speculation that the influenza caused a disease called encephalitis lethargica, which became almost epidemic in the 1920s and then later disappeared, and which affected patients in Oliver Sacks' book, Awakenings. Both the 1918 pandemic and other viruses have been linked to Parkinson's disease. Anyway, he concludes by saying the Great Barrington Declaration aims at a straw man and opposes the kind of large general lockdowns that began in March, and at the moment, no one is proposing that. He closes by asking, is an alternative? Well, there was once such a simple one, which was that the vast majority of public health experts urged for months, social distancing, avoiding crowds, wearing masks, washing hands, and a robust contact tracing system for those who are asked to self-quarantine. He omits mentioning the fact that, oh yeah, we need to test along the way too. That's how you know who to contact, trace, and isolate. He notes that some states listen to the advice and have done well, just as many schools listen and have reopened without seeing a surge. But the Trump administration and too many governors never got behind these measures. They reopened at too many states too soon and still haven't straightened out testing. And he can't resist adding worse, the White House has all but embraced herd immunity and has also poisoned the public with misinformation, making it all but impossible to get national near-universal compliance with public health advice for the foreseeable future. And as a result, achieving near-containment of the virus, and he cites the fact that South Korea has 440 deaths, Australia 904, and Japan 1,657. Well, that's now impossible. But we can aim for results akin to those in Canada, which had just 23 deaths last Friday, and Germany, which had 24 on the same day. All right. And you know what? Let's talk a little bit about schools. We spoke a few months back with um, Stu Wexler, a uh, high school teacher and a good one, an award-winning one, in fact, out in New Jersey, who was expressing some concern about going back to school in the COVID era. And I think, uh, you know, it's time we, we got some feedback from him and h- on how things are going. So welcome back, Stu. Hi, how you doing, Doug? Doing okay. How are you doing out in New Jersey in school? Well, I could be better. Um, I think there is an element of pandemic fatigue setting in on multiple different constituencies, and it's causing us to lose sight of what is a dangerous virus. So when you say that, just people are just there, they're, they're worn out and they just drop their guard? I think, yeah, I think people are not taking a step back and realizing where they are now versus where they were when they were open to delaying reopening of schools or taking greater interventions in the schools. Because the reality is in most places, including most places in New Jersey, the conditions are actually more risky, I would say, now than they were when we made the decisions to not go back into buildings in the first place. So remind us, what, what steps have been taken? It depends, especially in New Jersey, on which district you're in. In many places, they've went remote, 
In other places, they've gone to a hybrid model. In some places, and I give credit to say like my school district, there were measures to uh, upgrade the air systems, which I think is where most of the, the attention is not being paid throughout the country. But unfortunately, a lot of those upgrades, and again, I'm not just speaking of, of my school system, but in many places, are based on checking boxes that would be good for air quality in 2012, but not for what experts say is needed in 2020 and 2021. So you've got this combination of community spread or outside conditions being actually worse in much of the country than when many schools struggled with the decision to reopen or not, and interventions that are probably insufficient to say that you're taking what the steps needed to keep people safe. Well, are you seeing people coming down with the virus, or does it seem like it's coming along okay? Um, well, it's a little bit tricky. In, in you know, There certainly are cases showing up in schools, but there's also a, a real question about whether or not in some places you would start seeing the outbreaks this early, whether or not you're getting data in, the, in an honest and open fashion, either from the districts or from, say, parents. That There have been more than one case where I've seen teachers who have uh, sort of screenshotted conversations amongst parents, and the discussion is along the lines of, yeah, your kid has symptoms, but don't say anything, just keep them home, because if it does turn out to be COVID, we're going to have to cancel the football season. Oh, boy. Or we're going to have to go back to remote. And all of these things, again, lead to the possibility that we really don't have the data we need to really say what is happening at schools yet. Well, it's the third week of, of October. Uh, you've got a long way to go till June. Do you think you're going to be okay? I am particularly worried because we're about to enter the stretch when most epidemiologists and infectious disease experts are saying, will be possibly the worst we've experienced in terms of caseloads and infections because it's winter. You have to be indoors. This disease is airborne. You have to run your heat so you're not going to get as much fresh air, and you have to close your windows. What are your temperatures like at the moment, by the way? The last few days they've been very good, but we're probably historically about a week to two weeks away from where you really have to start taking measures with cold. Well, I think it's universally agreed that this thing is going to get worse before it gets better. And I just hope, too, you, you guys can all hang in there and uh, uh, give us a progress report when we get towards Christmas, toward, towards Christmas break. And, and we'll really, I guess, I guess you guys will really know where you're going by then. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, and I hope... We get a lot of things that may not show up right now or aren't projected to show up until the spring a lot sooner than that. But, you know, I would just wait until those things happen, rapid testing, better treatments, more widely available treatments, et cetera. I would, I would urge people to wait. That's, that's my two cents. All right. Well, you're out there on the front lines, sir. We, we wish you the best and, and hope, this, you know, hope we get the best case scenario out of this. Hope so, too. You have a good one. All right, Stu. All right. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly.
We would start by noting that it was a good week last week and probably, you know, a good year for deer with the news that State Farm shows that there were 70,000 fewer insurance claims this last year, which represents a 20% reduction for damage caused by animal collisions. We believe this is not from fewer animals, but from fewer knuckleheads driving into them. It was a bad week last week for fake endorsements after the Trump campaign released a TV ad about the pandemic that included a clip of Dr. Anthony Fauci saying, I can't imagine that anybody could be doing more. An angry Fauci said he'd been describing the efforts of federal public health officials, not President Trump, which evidently did not endear him to Trump. And speaking of Trump, it's apparently an ugly week for political corruption last week when it was revealed that more than 200 companies, governments, and special interest groups profited in some way from the Trump administration after spending millions of dollars at the president's businesses. That's according to a New York Times analysis based on the president's tax returns, public records, and interviews with 250 people. Clients of Trump's properties, including Florida sugar barons, a Chinese billionaire, and a Serbian prince, reaped large and small rewards. Some got a presidential tweet. Five members of Trump's Mar-a-Lago club were offered ambassadorships, while still others gained access to federally protected lands. Nice. Just 60 of these entries funneled almost $12 million to the Trump organization during his first two years in office. And wouldn't you know it, nearly all of them saw their interest advanced in some way. That, of course, could have been a coincidence. Since we're looking for good news, remember when we used to do good news on this show, Mr. McMillan? Actually, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure I do either. We consider it good news that NASA succeeded in ramming a sampling arm into the asteroid Bennu in order to bring pieces of it back to Earth. This is described as a first for the U.S., although Japan had previously scored asteroid samples. Lead scientist Dante Loretta at the University of Arizona was quoted as saying, I can't believe we actually pulled this off. The spacecraft did everything it was supposed to do. Well, yeah, but apparently it's going to be a week before scientists know how much, if any, anything got grabbed and whether another try is going to be needed. Anyway, Bennu is a very small piece of real estate. It's only like something like 15 or 1600 feet across. The 11 foot robot arm that they used had to kind of pogo stick into it and bounce right back out after 10 seconds. They think this asteroid contains uh, bits and pieces from the earliest days of the solar system, some building blocks of how things kind of came together and they're keen to examine them which, you know, it's going to take several years for it to make its way back to Earth and drop it off. Anyway, it looks like our foray into good news isn't going to last very long. I'm holding in my hand an obituary, in this case, that of the 49ers pass-rushing star Fred Dean, who entered the Pro Football Hall of Fame back in 2008. We're sad to report that Fred Dean passed away at the age of 68 from coronavirus. And yes... It is horrifying to contemplate this complete and utter physical specimen succumbing to this virus. Fred Dean arrived at the 49ers from the San Diego Chargers in their first run at the Super Bowl. And I can remember oh so well watching a game at the Long Beach VA Hospital, wherein it appeared that Fred Dean was single-handedly taking apart the Dallas Cowboys. I enjoyed that very much. Fred Dean was only 68, and you know, again, he was just an incredible physical specimen in his heyday, and 
just goes to show you that, you know, the wrong person will not do well with this virus. We're still trying to work out what the risk factors are. There does, a, there does, for example, appear to be a benefit to having type O blood, which I'm sad to report I do not. But if you do, dear listener, good on you. I do. Well, I guess you can take your mask off now. And here's a report from the early days of the pandemic I can't help but mention. It was the afternoon of February 24th. On that day, the president declared on Twitter that the coronavirus was very much under control in the United States. But a few hours earlier, senior members of the president's economic team privately addressed board members of the conservative Hoover Institution and were considerably less confident. The senior economic advisor to Trump told the group he could not yet estimate the effects of the virus on the U.S. economy. And the next day, board members heard from Larry Kudlow, the director of the National Economic Council. And just hours after he boasted on CNBC, the virus was contained in the United States and, quote, it's pretty close to airtight, unquote. Kudlow delivered a more ambiguous private message asserting that the virus was contained in the U.S. to date, but now we just don't know. And apparently a lot of members of the briefing uh, went out and sold off their stock, which, according to the New York Times, showed that the president's aides appeared to be giving wealthy party donors an early warning at a time when Trump was publicly insisting that the threat was non-existent. Jeez, you hate to think that sort of thing could go on. All right, in the three minutes or so we have left, I do want to plug a documentary which I think you should see, dear listener. It's called The Perfect Weapon and talks about how the Bush administration took Stuxnet along with the Israelis, managed to mess up a bunch of uh, centrifuges in Iran, but it got loose and caused a big old mess and it opened the door for nation states to do cyber warfare on other nation states. And also nation states may be getting involved in the elections of other nation states. And yes, everybody does it. We do it. The Chinese do it. The Russians do it. But it certainly does appear the Russians did it to us in 2016. That's only a small part of that documentary. But it does, uh, it does make an appearance. And, and again, I, I recommend it highly. I also recommend the article that appeared in The Atlantic by Barton Gelman titled The Election That Could Break America. Anyway, in our ultimate show before the election, I hope that we will uh, go over uh, this, this article in The Atlantic uh, with Stephen J. Harper. Uh, I do want to quote briefly from it as we close. Gelman said that a lot of people, including Joe Biden, the Democratic Party nominee, have misconceived the nature of the threat on election night. They frame it as a concern, unthinkable for presidents past, that Trump might refuse to vacate the Oval Office if he loses. They generally conclude, as Biden has, that in that event, the proper authorities will escort him from the White House with great dispatch. Gelman says the worst case, however, is not that Trump rejects the election outcome. The worst case is that he uses his powers to prevent a decisive outcome against him. If Trump sheds all restraint and if his Republican allies play the parts he assigns them, he could obstruct the emergence of a legally un- he could obstruct the emergence of a legally unambiguous victory for Biden in the Electoral College and then in Congress. He could prevent the formation of consensus about whether there's any outcome at all. He could seize on that uncertainty to hold on to power. And believe you me, dear listener, this is a real possibility. It's a very long article, and we could devote a whole show to it. But fortunately, dear listener, you can go on to the internet or wherever and find it written up or listen to an interview on radio. I think that they conducted one on uh, Fresh Air, or maybe it was, well, I'm not sure which show it was, but it was on NPR. 
The article does note that Trump called into Fox News on August 20th and told Sean Hannity, we're going to have sheriffs and we're going to have law enforcement and we're going to have hopefully U.S. attorneys to keep close watch on the polls. And the fact is Republicans and allies have litigated scores of cases in the name of preventing fraud in this year's election. State by state, they have sought with some success to purge voter rolls, tighten rules on provisional votes, uphold voter identification requirements, ban the use of ballot drop boxes, reduce eligibility to vote by mail, discard mail-in ballots with technical flaws, and outlaw the counting of ballots that are postmarked by Election Day. The intent and the effect is to throw away votes in large numbers. And they may have help from Vladimir Putin. We recommended Kill Chain, that documentary, in addition to The Perfect Weapon. We suggest you consider checking them both out. Because if you want to hack into a, an election machine or a, or a voter registrations, you don't have to, like, actually change the vote. You just say, change the registration from Edward McMillan, 122 D Street, to Edward McMillan, 133 E Street. And when he shows up in the polls, they say, oh, I'm sorry, sir, this doesn't match. Again? And final note from Bart Gelman's article which talks about a blue shift, how as votes are counted after Election Day, it tends to go blue more than it has in previous years. It's just the nature of how things are going in the electorate. But when Ron DeSantis, Florida's governor and a Trump ally, saw his election lead shrink by 18,000 votes in election 2018, Trump had seen enough. He said the Florida election should be called in favor of Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis in that large number of new ballots showed up out of nowhere. Many ballots are missing or forged. He then tweeted baselessly, an honest vote count is no longer possible. Ballots massively infected must go with election night. Pretty sure that's not going to be the last time we hear the phrase must go with election night. But let's end it there. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. If you know any undecided voters in swing states, dear listener, and and you are convinced by what you've heard on this program and elsewhere that, you know, we probably should have a referendum on the Trump administration and let them go, we'll give them a good talking to, will you? And we'll try to give you one final good election talking to on next week's program. I'm Douglas Everett. We will see you then.